0: Welcome to the Colonial Department, the podcast where we take long-lost stories from Philippine colonial history and bring them to life. In this episode, we continue the story of opium in the Philippines and how the struggle to control the powerful narcotic could have become the blueprint for the drug laws and drug wars of today. This is Season 3, Episode 8, God's Own Medicine, Part 2. We began last week's episode with a character from one of Jose Rizal's novels, so it seems fitting that we begin this new one with another. Quiroga makes a very, very brief appearance in El Filibusterismo, but in many ways, you could see him as a skewed mirror image of Capitan Chago. Chago hosted parties, Quiroga hosted parties, Chago ran businesses, Quiroga ran businesses. But if the, father of Maria Clara was a genial pillar of the community, Quiroga was a more sinister figure. Like Chago, Quiroga was involved in the opium trade. He also owed a ton of money to the jeweler and revolutionary Simon, who is actually Crisostomo Ibarra in disguise. Looking at the sneering, sniveling merchant through his forbidding shades, Simon leveraged Quiroga's debt to store guns for his uprising inside the merchant's opium-scented warehouse. It's generally believed that Rizal modeled Quiroga after Chun Tien Shan, or to use his Filipino name, Carlos Palanca. During the Spanish regime, Palanca had built his fortune and became one of the most important businessmen in the archipelago. But when Spanish power collapsed, he approached the president. Palanca had lived in the Philippines for the past 40 years. He thought he knew which way the wind would blow. Palanca talked to a friend of Emilio Aguinaldo and proposed an idea. What if he set up an opium monopoly, but this time, for the Philippine Revolution? The Spanish-era opium monopoly, with its farms and smokehouses and everything, suffered a big blow when Filipinos tore up their tax cards and commenced their revolution. Understandably, of course, it's hard to run a business, even a narcotics business, when there's a war in your backyard. Nevertheless, in the areas it controlled, the Aguinaldo government retained, as best as it could, the opium franchises bidded out by the Spanish colonial authorities. We never knew if Carlos Palanca and Emilio Aguinaldo ever shook hands on that opium deal, but the fledgling republic knew a cash crop when they saw one. By November 1898, Filipinos were auctioning off their own contracts and leasing their own opium dens. In fact, they made it even easier for narcotics entrepreneurs. The base price for a three-year contract went down to 9,000 pesos. Contractors or contratistas had to pay monthly dues and a 10% deposit. In just one month, opium money poured into the Philippine Treasury to the tune of 104,575 pesos. Then the Americans came. And what did they do about the opium monopoly? Well, they broke it apart. After successfully blocking Aguinaldo from entering Manila, the Americans set up shop inside the colonial capital, which at the time had 200 opium dens that were mostly operating inside the seedy back rooms of business establishments. For 20 centavos, Chinese looking for a little escape could lie down and have a toque. Just like that, the new colonial conquerors cancelled all existing Spanish opium contracts and axed the old-school franchise system. To make up for lost income, they decided to jack up taxes on opium imports. Bringing in the drug inside the country, you'd have to pay 45% of the value at customs. And if you wanted to smoke it, well, anybody could now, because the Americans dropped the non-Chinese ban. Even Filipinos would be allowed to have a little smoke. By splintering the monopoly and opening up opium use, the drug trade became a Wild West-style free-for-all wrote historian Daniel Woods.
1: Unintentionally, the process of community rationalization democratized the opium trade in the Philippines. The abolition of state-licensed monopolies opened up the traffic to a broader array of merchants. Even small-scale smugglers could make sizable profits.
0: From 1899 to 1903, imports of opium jumped threefold, and those were just the legal shipments. Smugglers were known to employ drug mules aboard ships to carry opium into the country just to escape the heavy tax. Then, soon after the Americans took power, a proposal began to circulate around the government corridors. What if they brought back the opium monopoly? This set off alarm bells inside the hallowed halls of the Protestant churches in the Philippines. On May 31, 1903, a group of missionaries pooled their funds together and sent a telegram straight to Washington, D.C. It was one expensive long-distance letter that one telegram alone cost 150 gold dollars. How much is that in today's money? Well, the inflation calculator of the U.S. Bureau of Labor only goes back to 1913. But $150 then is $4,533 now, so this telegram was really expensive. And what did this expensive telegram say? Well, it contained only 10 words. Highest bidder opium monopoly bill pending will greatly stimulate consumption. It was signed by Reverend Homer Stuntz, a Methodist member of the Evangelical Union of American Missionaries, and it was addressed to the International Reform Bureau, an influential Christian lobbyist group inside the Beltway of Washington, D.C., And why were these men of the cloth protesting the drug trade? Well, the Protestant missionaries wanted America to be a better class of colonizer. Theirs was a civilizing, Christianizing mission to make the Philippines a better place than when it had fallen, by the grace of God, into their laps. And what kind of benevolent assimilationists would they be if they allowed this vice, this sin of opium, to flourish in the Philippines? The lobby group swung into action. If the colonial government of William Howard Taft was dead set on reviving the Spanish-era opium monopoly, maybe the missionaries would take it up with his boss. Letters flooded the White House office of President Theodore Roosevelt. Calling back to the devastating opium wars from the century before, a leading Methodist told the president,
1: Surely the United States is not going to duplicate the disgraceful record of Great Britain in toying with this awful curse.
0: A women's temperance group also asked Congress to take a look not just at the problem of opium addiction in the Philippines but inside the continental United States as well. The Christians and the temperance groups had an unexpected ally by their side, the Chinese. Chinese merchants in the Philippines didn't want to go back to the old franchise system. They liked the American style free-for-all just the way it was. Both the Chinese Consul General in Manila And the Chinese delegation inside Washington D.C. urged the U.S. government not to bring back the monopoly. President Roosevelt listened. Maybe not to the Chinese, but the religious groups definitely had his ear. He asked that readings for the proposed bill be put on hold. Why were the American rulers so hot to return the opium monopoly? In a letter to the secretary of war governor general william howard taft explained his side he knew monopolies were bad in principle and prone to abuse he also believed that among the chinese most smokers of opium took it in moderation but taft knew that opium unlike other addictive substances like alcohol was under a different level of scrutiny the same people who would have no problems with liquor licenses would be absolutely horrified that the government was issuing opium licenses. So why bring it back?
1: Increased use among Filipinos is the real cause for introducing the bill.
0: Daft wrote, in addition, setting up an opium monopoly would mean higher prices because that's how monopolies work. And higher prices would mean, in theory, less users. But it was out of his hands now. To placate public opinion, the Governor-General set up a Philippine Opium Committee to study the issue. One of its members was Bishop Charles Brent of the Episcopalian Church—yes, that Brent, the one whose name currently graces three of the most expensive and prestigious international schools in the country. Brent firmly believed in America's moral mission in the Philippines and was one of the most outspoken critics of the Opium Bill. Bishop Brent and the committee traveled to Japan, Formosa, Shanghai, and all over Southeast Asia, studying their opium policies. They sent surveys to provincial officials across the Philippines to solicit their opinions on opium. They even tried to interview the local Chinese community, though only one merchant agreed to go on record. The findings of the committee were clear. In a final report laced with ridiculous ideas about the hierarchy of race, The members argued that opium kicked you down the racial ladder. Take a toque and a Chinese person would sink down to the intellectual and physical level of a Filipino. And a Filipino after opium? They would scrape the quote-unquote bottom of worthlessness. When it came to opium, the Spanish had it wrong, said the report. You couldn't restrict opium smoking to just the Chinese. It would spread and infect the native population and turn them into addicts. No, the committee argued, the Japanese were on the right track. Absolute prohibition. No opium allowed anywhere. That would stop the drug problem entirely. The cherry on top argued the committee. It would also keep out an undesirable class of Chinese immigrants. On March 1, 1908, the opium prohibition took effect in the Philippines. You couldn't smoke it. You couldn't import it. You couldn't even own pipes, syringes, or lamps connected to opium smoking. Opium was totally banned unless you had a valid medical prescription from your doctor. Thousands of opium addicts were forced into treatment at hospitals that quickly became overcrowded. Makeshift hospitals for the treatment of addiction had to be set up. And of course, the opium trade had to move underground. Writes Daniel Words,
1: Opium dents, their suppliers, and their patrons learned to adapt to the new conditions, even as the rapidly increasing price of opium drove their numbers down. Opium dens became more secretive and guarded, changing locations frequently, maintaining tight security, and keeping only small stocks of opium that could be quickly disposed of in the event of a police raid.
0: And of course, when you have crime, you get corruption. Within 10 years of the opium ban, Filipino and American government and military officials were already linked to the drug trade. Nevertheless, the members of the Philippine Opium Committee pat themselves on the back for a job well done and then took their work international. In 1909, Bishop Charles Brent presided over the Shanghai Commission an international conference that aimed to set up a definitive opium control policy over the entire world. Then, in 1920, Bishop Brent was part of the American delegation to a conference set up by the League of Nations, which is the United Nations before there was a United Nations. In this conference, Brent and the rest of the Americans lobbied for a global prohibition on opium. Historian Daniel Wertz argues, the lessons learned in the Philippine fight against opium in the first decade of the 1900s became influential in setting up narcotics policies all throughout the world. Opium smoking eventually disappeared throughout much of the globe in the decades to come. But the children of opium remain. Morphine, codeine, and the illegal drug heroin are all directly derived from the opium poppy, While opioids like fentanyl, methadone, and oxycodone were created in the lab as synthetic mirror images of the plant's pain-killing properties. Their sale, distribution, and use is strictly regulated to this day. The laws of man presiding over God's own medicine. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Colonial Department. References used in this episode are written on the show notes, but I'd also like to express my thanks to my main sources. The Aguinaldo and American policy on opium was discussed by Alma Bemero's Opium, the evolution of policies, the tolerance of the vice, and the proliferation of contraband trade in the Philippines, 1843-1908. The Protestant missionary's quest to ban it comes from Daniel P. Wirt's Idealism, Imperialism, and Internationalism, Opium Politics in the Colonial Philippines, 1898-1925. Audio from the Battle Hymn of the Republic was taken from the United States Army Band's YouTube page. Quotes from sources were read by Anya Ong. The Colonial Department was written and produced by Leo Mangubat. Follow us on Instagram at The Colonial Department.